Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by Warranty Wise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley Davidsons, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook. At West Coast Motorcycles. John Brown has owned over 3,000, yes, 3,000 interesting, historic, significant cars in his time, including, get this, the first ever McLaren road car. He is uh, a talented raconteur, he's been a very bad boy in his time. <laughs> Great guest, John Brown. A few years ago, somebody called me and said out of the blue I, he called me out of the blue I know the guy I knew him from back in the day he's a TV executive and he said to me how would you like to be the next Fred Dibner Steve and I went I'd love to be the next Fred Dibner and then I told him a story about having my first not my first alcoholic drink actually going to a bar and paying for it with my own money because you know we, we'd all been sneaked cider at weddings and stuff like that yeah. by naughty uncles mm-hmm. you know but um the first pub I went in and bought a drink was the Rose and Crown on Manchester Old Road in Bury, Lancashire, by the Buckley Wells Railway Sheds, which are, I believe, the oldest operating, continually operating railway sheds in the world and home, right. to, home to Riley's, to whom I'm related, who yeah. recently restored the Flying Scotsman in their oh, sheds at Buckley Wells. Mm-hmm. So the Rose and Crown was the first place. It was the day that we left school. I was uh, 16 years old. I'd taken street clothes because I knew we were going to go and try and have a drink to celebrate. And so I changed out of my school blazer. Uh, fortunately, I was a bit of a bit of a, a moddy boy. It was the mod revival in the late 70s. So I didn't have to change too much. I think I reversed my tie so that the thin end was showing instead of the fat end. <laughs> and I went into the Rose and Crown and I bought a pint of lager. Years later, I was watching Fred Dibner present one of his shows, and um, he said... Great, great man. He was, man. he was. He was. Do you know what he did? He stayed true to his roots. We, we've got a statue of Victoria Woodenberry, and she, mm-hmm. as soon as she got a tiny sniff of fame, she left and never visited the town again. When she was oh, on... No, Gre- Fred, when, Fred was true to his roots. Fred was true to his roots. He was looking through a book of photos, and he said, Oh, the Rose and Crown in Bury. He said, that was a proper railwayman's pub, that were... <laughs> He said, the back room was black as coal with soot. He said, they used to come across from Leeds and Liverpool. They'd go in there and they'd have four or five pints. And you think to yourself, the the funny thing is, you're watching it and you think, great. And then you think, actually, was four or five pints a good idea? But I say this to you, John, beer was weak back in the day, wasn't it? It was. It was, yeah. Well, I come from Electric Garden City, which was actually a Quaker town. It was founded by a guy called Ebenezer Howard. And Ebenezer Howard had this dream uh, to build the world's first garden city. Um, Probably quite a good idea because uh, it was quite quite well spaced out. Um, But it had this wonderful idea that as winds in the UK blow from west to east, um, they thought, well, all the industry in the town would be on the eastern side. And then all the houses would be on the north, west and southern side. And in the centre would be your town, the actual town. 
So the wind would blow all clean air from the west across the town, and then when it got to the industrial area, they'd blow it across the fields. But they forgot the next town is Baldock, which got flooded with all the fumes, um, because we had foundries and all sorts of things here in those days. But there was not a pub in Letchworth until 1962. So it's known as the dry city, the dry city. I can assure you it wasn't so dry when we were young. Um, well, well, we, we found a way. John, famously, Lynchburg, Tennessee is a dry county, isn't it? The home of Jack Daniels, one of yes. the world's most famous uh, enhanced beverages, is dry. If you want to drink, you have to go to the next, the next county. Indeed, indeed. But I'm it's... no good at drinking. I'm useless at it, especially <laughs> as I've got older. I mean, Steve, one beer, and I'm honestly, I'm on the way. I've got to stop because look, I tell jokes to anybody about any subject. I'm not PC. There's no hatred in my jokes. However, I just, if I have a drink, I don't, I don't stop. It keeps going. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely sober. It's what's the time? It's just gone 11 in the morning. Um, I get a buzz out of being alive, sniffing fresh air. So, um, Lecture Garden City was probably the best thing could happen to me. John, have you, ever had a go, have you ever had a go at stand-up comedy? I should have done. Um, I have done it, um, but not intentionally. You know, it's been in the bar, and I've just got an audience. And then, because once, once you pay me too much attention, it'll get better and better and better. And uh, I used to do it quite a lot in the local bars around here. And dinner parties is amazing. You know, I, I've had people crying so, and crying. Well, but that, that's the way it is. Here's, here's the thing. I, I did it because I became... And I think there's a certain sort of mindset and a lot, a lot of speed shop guests, I think. There's not much commonality on speed shop. We've had literally peers of the realm who live mm-hmm. in, in sort of Tudor mansions. And we've had... A lad from Bolton who lives in a tourist house and made a, a weird three-wheel car out, literally out of bits of scrap left over from his job as, job as a metal fabricator. But I think everyone has a, a similar mindset in that they, they're not limited in the way that so many people are. They think, OK, we had a guy on here. He's, he's a pal of mine, Ruben. He, he deals at... He's, at the bottom end of the classic car market, he sells rusty old Morris Miners, MG uh, midgets, stuff like that. He, he trades mm-hmm. in classics from about um, five to ten thousand pounds. He had a fantastic find recently. He found a mini super deluxe Mark One, super super rare. He went to buy a Golf GTI, and the guy said, "I don't suppose you're interested in this old mini." And he was like, uh, "That car's gone to California." He, he put it on eBay, and the bidding war was crazy. But um, mm-hmm. people have a similar mindset. They're not limited. And so I'd been asked to compare com- the Manchester Comedian of the Year. And it was a big thing with the biggest brewery in Manchester. And, and it visited various of their pubs, which had been bought and refurbished. And they'd say, right, it's one of the heats, Comedian of the Year. Manchester's a huge university city. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of that. And so all these mm-hmm. young people who fancy themselves as stand-up comedian comedians got up every wednesday for about two months and absolutely stank the place out john i'm telling you they got hundreds of, of video clips sent into them and they whittled it down it was mainly young people early 20s saying you know when you're in your shared house and somebody eats your hummus isn't it terrible and i was like oh my god so i said i'm going to do at the final in the break i'm going to do a seven minute set uh-huh. i'll give you a sample of one of my jokes um what kind of films do crows like? They love the they love the carry on. 
<laughs> hey! But here's the thing. I wrote that joke. I sat down and wrote some jokes, actual jokes, because I thought, I'm not just going to get up and tell a story. You know, yeah. I'm going to tell... I'm going to try and get people to laugh. I told one... I, we, we must move on. We must well, move on. I was going to tell you about crows. You, you brought the subject up. Back in 1961, 62, you might remember the film, the Alfred Hitchcock film, The Birds. Of course. Brilliant film. Great cars. Quite a frightening, quite a frightening film. Well, our local cinema, the Broadway cinema at Letchworth, Garden City, had its opening there. It had The Birds on. I thought, well, do you know what? We're going to go watch that. So um, we got some tickets and we duly went along. But prior to going there, we got up on our local church roof and thought, let's bring some reality (laughs) into this film. And we climbed up on the church roof and we got some butterfly nets and we caught some pigeons. We got six pigeons. There was three of us, Roger Bradburn, uh, Roger Bowman and myself. And we thought, let's go now to the cinema. Let's go. So we got these pigeons and we thought, how are we going to get them in, John? I said, well, look, what we'll do, we'll tie their legs together and I'll hang them under my armpits. I'll wear my dad's raincoats because I was a scrawny little kid, you know, I was 15. And we put this raincoat over me and these pigeons were flapping away under my armpits. And we joined the queue to go into the cinema and we got front upstairs circle, which is absolutely perfect for some practical jokers like us. So we all sat there waiting, waiting, the film started. Because if you remember the start of the film, the birds in the Alfred Hitchcock film come, these big black crows come flying out the sky and attack people. They're, mm. they're poking people's eyes out, their beaks are going through doors and telephone boxes. And at that moment, we threw the, these pigeons over the balcony. And I thought they'd fly around the cinema, but they don't. They don't fly at night, pigeons. They just dropped on the people below. <laughs> Steve, I promise you, that place emptied. It emptied straight away. There were screams and shouts. It was good before they started. You know, just the film was making people very nervous and screaming. But when the real birds hit them, they absolutely legged it out the cinema. Because at the end, when the lights came on, there was nobody downstairs at all. It was just us guys up the top, you know, having some fun. John, so can that, you... That, can you remember the car? That, was it an Aston Martin that she drove in that? I seem to remember she went out to the holiday home of the uh, of, of her love interest. Mm-hmm. I'm fairly sure it was a very early Aston Martin because it was Tippy. I can't remember Tippy Hedron, you know, wasn't it? Too busy laughing at the birds. Yeah, I, I mean, do you do you like me? Probably not actually, but do you watch those those old films and think, look at all? I, I I'm terrible for watching like my missus is in the film business. I mention this every week, but she yeah, is. Yeah. She's currently making a Christmas movie in Vancouver, Canada, and uh, hmm. and she she said, I'll speak to you in a couple of weeks' time. I'm very busy. <laughs> that was it. I got a one line email. We've been together. Hey, a I lot. look at cars on films, probably like yeah. yeah. Things, you know, I've, I've had that. I've owned that. I've owned these, and and you know, I've owned physically over three thousand historic cars. Wow. So. Wow. I have had them all. And my cars go back to the 1890s. Um, and I love historic vehicles. I mean, kids today, they think of Ford Escort's veteran vintage. No, it's not. No, it's not. You've got to go back into the 30s, 20s, 10s. You know, those are cars. Well, and that's what upsets me today with modern car programs. You know, you watch Top Gear and all this stuff. I'm sorry. It's all changed too much. Let's have some historic vehicles mixed in with all the modern cars as well, the supercars and everything else. But they don't cater for that. Yet there's so much fun and pleasure. And I'm sure, Steve, you still drive vintage veteran classics. Well, I drive them all even today, and I love it. I was going to say, this weekend, of course, it should have been London to Brighton. Indeed. And I was looking at the, my opportunity to actually finish the London to Brighton run because I've, 
I've done, it, I've done it three times. I've never finished. Really? Because I've done it twice in one of the very oldest, uh, very oldest vehicles that that is involved in the event, mm-hmm. and um, it's courtesy of my friendship with Doug Hill from the National Motor Museum at Beulah. Yeah. And yes. we we tried it a couple of times in a Leon Bolle tricar, eighteen ninety six, um, I think. What horsepower? Um. I don't think there were too many chevaux involved in the in the propulsion of this vehicle. Two and a half horsepower, was it? Yeah. Well, right. Okay. So, like you, as you've just said it, I am fascinated by early cars, and I mean early, like you Mm -hmm. know, cars cars that were built with a date that has a one and an eight at the start of it. I find particularly interested. Um, So pre carburetor. So in in Pre-carburetor, hot tube ignition. And, and again, you learn so much, don't you, John? Because Doug said yeah. to me, uh, yeah, hot tube ignition, so you had to light, you had to heat this up, sodium, whatever was going on. And he said, so it had to be done before, so somebody had to go out and, and light it. And that's where the term chauffeur comes from, because it means he who lights the fire. And I thought, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is why I love oh, the, the very earliest cars, because you see the way that, that the Americans thought, you see the way that the British thought, that, but particularly the Germans and the French, and I agree with Jay Leno when he mm-hmm. says Germany was the birthplace of the car, France was the nursery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was going to do it's it... Amazing, in... really. We, John, we've, I was... learned, we've learned a lot, yet nothing. We've made life too complicated, yet the simpler the car, the better the car in many ways. I mean, the engineering technology we've got today, with all the CNC machines, etc., really can make a very, very, very good engine, and especially with the modern fuels and modern oils. You know, it's virtually friction-free. You don't so, need all these gizmos that add on. What's, um, what's the oldest car that you've ever owned, Joe? Um, 1897, Benz. A Benz, right, OK. Yeah. So, so that's um, people... Wasn't there a point... Wasn't there a car that was actually called, and its actual name was Benz Mercedes? Yeah. Instead of the other way. Right, okay. Thank you. <laughs> I usually say these things on this show, yeah, and then well, big Mercedes, people go... Wasn't that... That was um, the name of um, the daughter, wasn't it, of Benz? Mm. How, how impressively made is that car? Because I, I, I've looked at a lot, of, uh, a lot of vehicles from that era, and you realise that there's a misnomer. People say, well, they don't build them like they used to. Well, when mm. it comes to anything, particularly in the Northwest, if you look at mill buildings or factories, you realise they were thrown up in the in mm. the white heat of the Industrial Revolution. Mm. A lot of stuff they all built to last. The build as well. Yeah, but that the the German stuff, and I, I'll tell you the the car, and you're going to be impressed. And I know you are because you're a, a man of uh, education and erudition. The car that I was going to do it in this year was a Dirac. Now there's a car. Mm. Oh yes. There's yeah. a car. It's a well-built car, too. Oh, yeah. And, like, it'll take four people and do 50 miles an hour. Mm, mm. Phenomenal. The amazing thing when you look at the old cars is, you've, you've, you know, people buy these things, you know, they, they see an advertisement, and they think, God, doesn't that look lovely, 1900, whatever it is. And it looks amazing, and they show a picture with somebody in a wicker basket having a picnic beside this wonderful old car on a country lane. And they, and they sit there on their loo, reading their local motorsport wire magazine they're reading. They think, oh, wouldn't it be lovely to have one of those? They go out and they buy one, and the first thing they do is they hate it because it's actually not like a current car. Everything on it is so different. The controls, the, the smells, the leaks of oils and waters, all that happens. And suddenly they go from 
wanting this lovely vintage veteran classic motor car um, and the dream goes sour. It's probably like the first time you buy a boat, you think, God, I wish I hadn't bought this, the sea rocks. You know, it's, everything's different. And uh, <laughs> the thing is, the amount of people that work on these cars, you know, technology in 1900, for instance, was down to the horse and cart and the blacksmith, mm. the village blacksmith. You take your car to be repaired um, and you get some real animal with, with a hammer and chisels and all sorts knocking nuts and bolts off. And I've had cars in more recent years where I've seen war wounds from those from the village blacksmith that was probably done in 1905. He's been trying to repair it in bodgy. And those bodgies still seem to stay on the cars. That's and, like uh, when yeah, you... still run. Yeah, that's like when, you, when you're repairing an older car, not a vintage car, but an older car, and you have to remove the sills and you find copies of the Daily Mirror saying, West Ham win Division 1. Harold Wil- Harold Wilson flies to France for talks with De Gaulle. <laughs> stuff, stuff like that, and you think, oh, right, OK. Yeah. With, with a handful of P38 filler just covering the hole. That, it was only that piece of paper that stopped the filler sinking into the hole. I mean, I, I used to see this happen in the 60s and 70s so much on cars. And hands up, Steve. I did it myself. Yeah, of course we did. Uh, we all did. I mean, the old story about the speedometer, you know, the clocks go back in October. All right, what, what mileage do you want, sir? Uh, that's the way it used to work. Again, it? I'm going I'm to mention him again, Jill. I know I'm going to... He was telling a story. I, I, I think he's the, the best car uh, motoring broadcaster there's ever been because he's a... He's a obviously uh, a gifted. Who, Jeremy? No, not Jeremy. I, I, Jeremy. Jeremy is brand Jeremy, and Jeremy's got a lot of positives going for him, and he plays mm-hmm. a role. He he, he decided okay. he decided at one point that he was going to be a contrarian, and he copied it from people like Hunter S. Thompson, the American writer, and particularly mm-hmm. P.J. O'Rourke, mm-hmm. the American writer and broadcaster. He thought, right, I'm going to be like that guy. I'm going to stand up and say the unsayable, and that's going to get me noticed. And I think. He, he plays that role because people said to me, "What's he like?" They, you, you must have met him loads of times, and people say, "What's he like?" And I go, "Kind of, kind of like that, but much more like a human being than like a brand." Because he's kind of like right. he's now he's like Coca Cola or Nike. It's like Clarkson. There's he brand yeah. Clarkson, and I mean, look how good he is. On he's he's got better. That's the thing about Jeremy. He's a clever guy, mm. and he's learned mm. how to do it, and he knows what he's doing. If you look at him hosting the quiz show, who wants to be a millionaire now, and then you go to YouTube and watch him doing his ill-fated ITV chat show from about 25 years ago, it's mm-hmm. night and day. He's become yeah. such a gifted broadcaster and such a such an able user of the camera. He knows... Like Steve McQueen, I'm going to, here's the thing. I'm going to compare Jeremy Clarkson to Steve McQueen. Like Steve McQueen, Jeremy is really good, and Michael Parkinson was always very good at this as well. Knowing what to do when the camera's on somebody else, and kind of when the camera's on somebody else, kind of stealing the limelight by just touching your chin or sort of. He's got mm. a really good way of bringing the, it's your not eyes. Shy. It's no. not camera shy. Steve. But the good thing with Jeremy, with, 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 Hay, with, with James May and Richard Hammond, look, they're, they're journalists. These guys understand cars as well. Oh, here we go. Um, and that's the thing I like about them. They do understand it. I do believe uh, the Top Gear, as it was, needed some change. Oh, yeah. Um, as it is today, I'm sorry it's not me. I no. do not 
It's yeah, not for us, John. Um, it's not for us. It's not the, the the beauty. You know, the number of times that I've been asked to go on and, and talk. It's twenty years since I was on Top Gear. Twenty years. Mm. Although I did work with all three of those guys, with James and Richard and Jeremy, because mm. you realise Jeremy was there when I when I started my very first piece on Top Gear, BMW R eleven hundred RS, October. Um, 1991, I think. Right, mm. and here was the thing that John Bentley, who was, and, and Ken Pollock and Dennis Adams, who were the three guys, John Bentley is the name that people would know because, of course, mm-hmm. John John is the Porcher-turned gamekeeper who, who kind of was our boss for years and then all of a sudden mm. decided he wanted to be a TV presenter and there he was. It was so <laughs> strange. It was, like, it was almost like if you're in a race team and you turned up, and the, te- the mechanic was kind of r- ripping around the track, or the, the team owner was ripping around the track. You're like, what's going on? Oh, he's decided he wants to do it because it looks like fun. You're sacked. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Well, I, I, can, I cannot believe that Chris, uh, well, Chris Harris, an exceptional driver, he's great. But he's not a natural presenter, much as I do like him, and he's a fantastic driver. Yeah. So you've, got, you've, got, um, you've got Flintoff, and who's the other guy? Um, uh, Paddy McGuinness. Paddy McGuinness. Right. Well, come on. These guys, they're, they're not motoring people. But do not hold, hold on, I can't Roger. believe they're still alive. Ho- Steve, I cannot believe they're alive. Their driving is atrocious. Hold One on. They're going to get hurt. Hold on, John. All, all they've done is go back to what Top Gear was before. I'm trying to think of the guy who was the... My boss was Dennis Adams, who was an old-school BBC producer, and he he knew what was good and he knew what wasn't, and he knew he knew how to run... Uh, a team of people and all that sort of stuff. But the real, I, I credit John Bentley, who's just written, he's been a guest on this show, and he's just written a very good book called Autopia, if you're looking for something mm-hmm. for Christmas. Um, I credit John because before, I made a show with Noel Edmonds called 21 Years of Top Gear, and we, we mm-hmm. and um, we, we look back at the start of the show and how it developed, and it started with him and Angela Rippon. It started with presenters, and if you mm-hmm. looked at if you looked at ITV, Thames Television made a motoring show as well, and it was presenters. They had Tony Bastopol, who used to be on kids' TV and stuff like that. Remember them, yeah. It yeah. was only when Dennis and John and Ken Pollock, those three, decided that what they needed was experts. And it's so weird because in other subjects, the BBC always looks for an expert. If they're going to do a history show, they look for a Simon Sharma. Well, I was going to say David Starkey, not anymore. They look for a Simon Sharma. If, they, if, they, if they're looking for med, if, if it's a medical subject, they look for a doctor. If it's mm. sport, they look for, you know, if you turn on um, Match of the Day, it's not just three blocks from the pub. It's, it's three or four ex-top degree, top grade footballers. But mm. when it came to cars, they just said, Oh, just get somebody off Songs of Praise, or you know, um, why don't you? Or it was so strange. But then they said, no, 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 let's look for journalists and see if we can turn them into television presenters, and that's why it works. When they canned old Top Gear in '99 and got rid of all of us, including Jeremy Clarkson um, and James May, they brought the show back, and the main presenter was—I don't know if you remember this—Kate Humble, the yeah. Nature Watch presenter. The Radio yeah. Times had a front cover of her in a sheepskin coat and a trilby hat, smoking a cigar, sat on a five-spoke Halley-Brand wheel, and the strap line on the bottom was, the woman who kicked Clarkson out of cars. Oh. That happened. <laughs> they, they showed, exactly, they showed the first show, and I went round to my parents' house, and my mother never, she's a saint, she never speaks ill of anybody, it's not in her nature, and she was dusting round, and she said to me, well, Stephen, 
She's one of the only people apart from policemen and tax officials who call me Stephen. Well, Stephen, I've watched that new version of your programme, which, of course, your mother would say, and I have to say, it's terrible. <laughs> that was it. And I, thought, I thought, yeah, it is. It's so weird that they would go, no, we don't need experts for motoring, but... What they've done with with and people said to me, "Would you go back?" And I went, "Yeah." What they actually need is they want to get rid of they want to get rid of Chris Harris so they can have another Lancastrian. I mean, can you imagine? They'd have to me, Freddie Flintoff, and Paddy McGuinness. They'd have to have subtitles in Surrey. <laughs> Hello, all right, Freddie. What's going on, lad? Hey, have you come in that car? Isn't it nice? Like, right? Okay, let's get. You know, can you imagine? Anyway, no. I, I, well, I know if if there was a change in format. I mean, I honestly believe you see we're stuck in one one attitude to motoring and, and, and great it's great to see the car sliding it's great to see them going through the dirt or it, it's good but look there's a, there's other generations of cars which mm. actually we aspire to you look at the antiques roadshow they're bringing up antiques there are antique motor cars or historical yeah. vintage or veteran motor they deserve a good airing now and if a show comes out if somebody wants someone to front it you me we're quite capable of doing this you know lift the bonnet up do this because they're wonderful to drive they really are you need you need to spend a little bit of time with them. You know, we don't need synchromesh to drive a car. It's only if you <laughs> are trained to drive a car, you understand how synchromesh does or doesn't work. And paddle shift, these kids driving around in their, their flash BMW M2s and their Lamborghinis 640s and all this stuff, you know, they, they think they're brilliant drivers. The car is, the, is doing all the work. Well, I, and, um, I hadn't, changed. up until a couple of years ago, I hadn't really... Uh, my, my taste, like my upbringing, are very Catholic when it comes to cars. I think that, that's why I like Jay's show because he, he he seems to like every car, and he and he, of course he's a biker. And you know, if you are a motorcyclist in your heart, then then truthfully, bikes will always come first. Um, mm. But we live in Britain. We live in we live in in a country where motorcycling and people say, oh, people used to ride all year round. I I rode to Bristol and back this week from Manchester, right? And do you know what? It was probably the nicest day of the week, but I still had to get togged up like it was an Arctic expedition. And, and, and you know, and frankly, that's not that's not enjoyable. When I'm in California, where my missus spends quite a bit of a time, and I, I've got a Ducati that I keep there, an old Ducati, mm-hmm. I, I, I know that I can just go out. And I don't have to think, right, OK, let's look at the weather. It's going to be nice. It's California. It's there, there are but you're places... dressed for it, aren't you? You're dressed for it. And yeah, nice but... Thing. Every journey like that, Steve, is a memory, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, and to be honest, I, I really enjoyed the ride, and I thought, I thought I'm going to take it easy. I'm not going to, I'm not going to. But in the end, I just thought, a couple, and it was a, one of the things that it confirmed to me. And I asked you about this as well. Is it confirmed to me that when it comes to motorcycles, a twin cylinder engine is just superior to any other configuration. And when you yes. think of the history of motorcycles, whether it's BMW, Ducati, Triumph, Harley Davidson, Indian, Bruff Superior, Vincent. You think of those names. There's there's a common bond, twin cylinder mm. engines. There's something about the way that a twin responds to to throttle input. You're doing you're doing 40 miles an hour. You're coming out of a wide bend. You can see the next bend coming up. You know you're going to go up a gear and then come down a gear, and you yeah. roll on the throttle. And no other engine gives you what a twin cylinder engine gives you in that amount of time. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, my, one of my early bikes. I mean, when I was 16, I I. I, I met a girl i quite liked her and you know one of my first bikes was a 500 ajs with sidecar double adult sidecar a buzzmar haven't got a, huh? a buzzmar a double adult buzzmar sidecar y- yep absolutely 
and uh, that straps on the side of the bike. And because, you know, when you've got nowhere to go courting, you know, you're not old enough to have a car because you're 16, you're not supposed to be on the road with a car, but a sidecar looked like a pretty good bet. Yeah. And um, I used to take her out on this motorbike and sidecar, and I felt like George and Mildred. Um, but anyway, nevertheless, it was great. And, uh, you know, one of my first amorous moments was actually in that double adult sidecar. <laughs> um, never fulfilled the dream, quite simply, because the, uh, the lid of the sidecar dropped down, crushing me and her legs on top of it. It took me about 20 minutes to extract ourselves. By that time, all the ardour had gone. And uh, I, I didn't think it was such a good idea. And I don't think she was too impressed with my romantic uh, suggestions of uh, going out again in a sidecar. So, um, I'll tell yeah, you my. Was... I'll quickly tell you my sidecar story. I was young and cocky and started in the film business and um, was doubling for two actors in a movie. Um, we were filming in Liverpool. It was a night shoot, and there were kind of loads of equipment and security and kind of loads of people and catering and makeup and costume and all this sort of stuff. So when I got to TV, when I got to Top Gear, I was like, because I've done films, I was like, where is everyone? Because <laughs> there was like a cameraman, a sound recordist and, and uh, a director. And they were like, no, this is it. This is how we do it. And not now. If you went to Top Gear now, it just looked like a movie. But in the 90s, it was... Three people at a presenter, that was it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so... Um... But with the sidecar, because when I was going back to Letchworth Garden City, which is obviously my hometown where I was born, <clears throat> and of course, the first pub opened, it was the Broadway Hotel, opened in 1962. Well, of course, right. I got my driving licence in 1963, and I thought, we used to have fun with the sidecar. I used to see, we used to have bets to see how many rounds I could go around the town on two wheels, i.e. with the sidecar in the air at about 45 degrees, with two passengers in it, and I'd drive right way around the town with two people sat in the sidecar. And this, I mean, the spokes were going through hell on the, on the motorbike wheels. But I could actually manage to drive around the town with two people in the sidecar on two wheels. So they were sitting up in the air high up. And I'd get a pint of beer every time I could do it. So that was always <laughs> quite good. <laughs> so, so that's how I got the free beer in, in 1960. Yeah, but the beer was so weak. We went, we went to the Goodwood Revival, uh, me and my missus, a couple of years ago. Love and it. they had I'll a go every year. they had a pop up sort of Tesco from the sixties. It had a sixties theme, and they had some sixties products that were no longer made that had been remade, like Spangles sweets. Do you remember those Spangles? Yeah, yeah I do very much. And they also well, had... you got to remember, you're younger than me. I'm seventy three. You're what are you fifty four? Fifty six. Fifty six. But not that not not so young that I don't remember Spangles and Double Diamond there. So I'm yes. neck. I'm I've got. I'm drinking a four smoking a. Big Monte Cristo was sitting on a sitting on a child's uh, ride on Harley Davidson outside, <laughs> which they keep putting 20, 20 pences in, and people are giving me funny looks. And, and well, you had shag tobacco then. With a, with oh a yeah, yeah, up, yeah. So I'm drinking this stuff, and my missus said, "How much of that have you drunk?" And I said, "Well, don't worry." I said, "It's like two point eight percent or something crazy." I said, "It's like it's it's virtually shandy." So all these stories from back in the day of my father's generation going. Oh, see, my dad tells this story of um, if you lived in Bury, the sort of post-industrial paper town just north, of, eight miles north of Manchester in the sort of 50s and 60s. It was a boom town. They used to work three shifts. Again, we'll talk about Dibner. Dibner used to say, Bury, the town where you can read the, a newspaper at midnight. The paper mills blazed that bright 24 hours a day. The town centre was just lit up. It was like daytime. You could read, you uh-huh. could read a newspaper. And back then he said, back then he said, on a night out, on a Saturday night out, you used to go to a place near Birtle. And I'll tell you who was from Birtle, Reg Harris, the British cycling cycling champion. Do you remember oh, really? him? Yeah, yeah, he was he was like he was a very interesting guy because 
And we, we might move on to talk about this. Anyway, the, the, my dad's story was about drinking a pint and it was 13 pints, but I now realise that those 13 pints were not very much alcohol involved in it. Mm-hmm. But the thing about Reg Harris was he was from Bury. He became famous as a cycling champion. He should have won in the Olympics after the war, but he had a training accident, which he kept very quiet. He had a broken back. He competed with a broken back and still won a silver medal. Mm-hmm. He, kept, he, did, he did the Mike Hellwood thing as well. He retired. And then years later, he came he, back. He, well, he wrote a cycling column. I don't know if you know this story, John. I think it's quite interesting. Um, he wrote a cycling column. For, I'm trying to make a documentary about Reg because he was from Bury and so am I. And I think he had a very interesting life. He was, he was an illegitimate lad from Bury. He became a cycling champion. And he tried to leave his past behind. He had elocution lessons. He, he had wine, <laughs> wine appreciation lessons. If you hear him, he got, he got voted Sports Personality of the Year. I think he won it twice. And uh, it was sponsored by the Daily Mirror then rather than the BBC. And he stood up to accept his award. And this is a guy from Bury. And he said, I thank you for this award, which has been graciously voted for. And you think, oh, dear me. But you kind of, he became friends with Princess Margaret and that crowd. And you think he, he escaped his past. And I think he, he got a Bentley and all that sort of thing. But. In '75, he was writing. He was he was long retired, a decade retired, and he was writing a cycling column for the Daily Mirror. And he said, "This current crop of British cyclists are so poor, I could probably beat them." And the number one rated cyclist said, "That old man needs to shut up." So Reg came back and won the British Cycling <laughs> Championship. <laughs> yes, he well, did. I was at the Isle of Man when Mike Howard won his. You were there. You were I was there. there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was brilliant. And Phil Reed, you know, he tried his best, bless him, but. You know, he couldn't do it. But Mike Howard, he did go there. I mean, I, he, he went round, he went there three months prior to the TC and, uh, in fact, was practising every day, every day. I mean, he knew the circuit anyway, but he just kept going round and round and round and round. He knew every bump, every curve, every every stone wall. He knew it all. John, and I'm about, he, I, if I walked out of this studio now, turned right and kept walking... I would bump into where sports motorcycles used to be in Manchester. Really? Really? Yeah, Steve Wynn. Really? Um, so, when... My... His old Fassel Vega came up for sale recently, the HK500. What an interesting car. What an I interesting car. It. Yeah, I wish I'd bought it. When you look at... I'll tell you what, John, again, we're talking about making uh, films, I'm talking about trying to make a film about Reg Harris, but... I'd love to make a film about the Fassel Vega, a proper one. Yeah. Because you look at the list of owners of the Fassel Vega, including Sterling, of course, who's, mm-hmm. who's, who, yes. who would famously, instead of flying, he'd just get in his Fassel Vega in London and drive to Brno or or wherever it was on the other side of Europe in the Fassel mm. and get there in more or less the same time it would take to go to the airport and get on a plane and yeah. fly to an airport and get in a taxi. Still, he'd yeah. just drive there. At, 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 and people think, how ridiculous. And you think, no, you yeah. have no idea how fast people used to drive on the road. There's famously that story of, famously, of, uh, again, Norman Jewish, somebody else who, who, who recently passed. Norman Jewish driving mm. from Coven- Norman, yes. Coventry yeah. to Geneva overnight having done a full day's testing at myra norman was told to get in the car drive to geneva when he got to geneva sir william lyons goes over to him and says right norman we're giving journalists test rides uh, your first one's booked in 20 minutes clean the car <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you imagine oh my goodness uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was always in trouble for speeding. You know, my father-in-law was chairman of the magistrates, and um, you know, I got banned. I think I, when I was a youngster, I probably got banned four or five times. 
And um, I was always speeding. You know, I, I was a mischievous lad. I really was mischievous. Anything I could do to muck, muck up the system, I'd probably try to do it, just, just to be a rebel. And, um, you know, in, in the end, in, you know, my, my motoring um, was quite well known around Electra uh, Town Centre. And everyone knew that uh, John was going to cut. If you heard something going quick, it was probably me. Um, whether it be an old jamp or AJS or an NSU quickly or, or my old Mark Six Bentley, for instance. You know, if it was going fast, it was probably me behind the wheel. Is and, it true, uh, yeah, John? John, is it Go true on. that you had a Mark Six Bentley on the road when you were 17? Yeah, when I was 17, I did. Yeah, that was um, brilliant. You know, that, that came from the proceeds of my poaching. Um, <laughs> <so> now... <laughs> You're making this up, John. This is, you were a no, poacher no, who, who had a Mark Six... Hey, there's a, there's a good yes. Hailwood story there. I'll just quickly tell yeah. that one. Um, Mike's first race, Sammy Miller told me this, the, the Northern Irishman who, who has the Sammy Miller uh, Museum down in the New Forest now. Great guy, yeah, no, great yeah, guy. Yeah. And Sammy told me a story, he said... When Mike turned up for his first race, um, his father, Stan, who, of course, was a, a, an immense character himself, Kings of Oxford, Stan Hellwood, I think it was the biggest motorcycle dealership in the UK, and he said Stan sent Mike in the Bentley, in a chauffeur-driven Bentley, but uh, while, while Mike was racing, the Bentley was instructed to sell tyres, inner tubes, oil, spark plugs from the boot of the Bentley. <laughs> <laughs> What? Well, I'll tell you what, Stan, you went to make money, a Yorkshireman. Well, our, well, our poaching, you see, you, you probably don't, I mean, in 1963, um, I used to go up to um, the army auctions at Ruddington when I used to sell all the military vehicles. Great fun, you know, I used to go up there. I went once, I bought one Austin Cham Jeep, and they're, they're a fabulous thing. You've got a five-speed forward and a transfer box, so you have five-speed reverse. So the thing would do 90 forwards and 90 backwards. I mean, it was an <laughs> immense vehicle to drive. Unbelievable. So I bought my first Jeep and I sold it, made a profit. And I said to some of my mates, look, come on, boys, we'll go up, we'll, we'll go up and buy a load of Jeeps. I'll pay for them and you can help me drive them back. Borrowed a set of trade plates and we got into one, one big car and we all drove up to, to uh, Ruddington. And I bought seven Jeeps, seven Austin Champs. Well, they've got no number plates on, nothing. I thought, well, we've got to get them home now. We're now up here. It's getting dark. So we thought, we got some air guns. We took our guns with us. We thought we'd do a bit of poaching on the way back. <laughs> so we got, we got one set of trade plates. So these Austin Champs, we got, we got them all running, and we got a trade plate on the front Austin Champ Jeep and a trade plate on the one at the back, and the five in the middle had no number plates on at all. And we, as we went down the A1, we came off and knocked down the A1, and we used to peel off into fields and go and, shoot some pheasants. It was stubble time. You know, in the stubble, the, the pheasants sit around at night. And they just, when, when a light comes up, they just put their heads up. They don't move. Don't fly away. Don't run away. They just stay there. And you just pop your air gun out, pop, 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 seven or eight or nine, chuck them in the back of Jeep, all join up again, and we all go down south. We ended up lecture with Hertfordshire. We've got local butchers, Chapman's in Bordock. Let's go to Chapman's in Bordock the next day and sell him all our you know, 30, 40 brace of pheasants. That 10 bob a brace, which actually was quite a good income at the time because it paid for our transport up and down to, to Ruddington. I used to make a profit on the Jeeps and all my mates had a good night out. It was actually fantastic fun. So that's what we used to do. Did, you ever, did, you, ever go and, did you ever go and um, shoot on an estate where you'd previously poached in later life and say, do you know what, when I was a kid... Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd, t- I'd well, tell you for why... Well, I'll tell you for why. When I went to work for the News of the World, and I was hired by the infamous Andy Coulson, the guy who oh, ended right. up, yeah, the guy, the guy who subsequently went on to be 
the advisor to uh, David Cameron, who, of course, was the yes, prime minister indeed. at one point, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and ended up in court saying, if there was any illegal behaviour, I was completely unaware of it. Oh, right, yeah, of course you were, Andy. He hired me. Well, they, and when I went the there... the gamekeepers were always after me, you see. They always used to want to chase me. So what we used to do, <clears throat> what they used to do, they used to put planks of wood with nails sticking up in the entrances to the fields. So if you went in, you couldn't get out. You'd run, you'd run out, you'd go for an ent- exit, and you'd go and run over these nails in the planks, and uh-huh. you'd punch your tyres. Ah, but we knew that. So what we used to do, we used to, we used to carry our own um, planks with nails in, and we turn their planks upside down so the nails were into the into the mud. So we never got a puncher. We go into a field, and then in would come a, a, a landro and chase us around, and we we'd fly off out of an entrance which we'd already turned the plank upside down. As we went out the gate, we'd throw our own plank down, which hopefully landed <laughs> nails up, and we'd be gone. So it's horrible. Everyone got stuck with punches. So no gamekeepers ever used to catch us because they couldn't, because um, they'd end up with punches. And we were always uh, quite, quite streetwise and uh, well, I was, had a lot of fun. What was the first car that you made a decent amount of money on and you thought, oh, you can actually buy and sell cars and you can actually make money? Well, you didn't make a lot of money. In, in, you know, in, when you consider in a 1962, 63, I mean, I remember I had a Morris 8, and from memory, I think I paid about three... No, I didn't. I bought a Rover, a Rover 16, and it had a broken half shaft, and it cost me £2.10, which is <laughs> two and a half quid. Now, that's a lot of car, isn't it? But you've got to remember, my, my Mark 6 Bentley I bought was £47. Right which I eventually sold for 70. So that was actually a really big profit. Yeah. You know, the national average wage at that time was £1,000 a year, £20 a week. And, you know, and people, pay- the other thing people don't realise is how hard it was to buy a car after the war. The, the, the last thing that the, the British government wanted post-war was for British people to buy new cars. They wanted the British motor industry to build lots and lots and lots of cars and sell them to Americans so we could get lovely dollars. And yes, so, and, but, and then, of course, the other thing that people don't realise is that higher purchase was technically illegal until about nineteen fifty-seven, fifty-eight, and so yes. you, uh, so you had to, you had to, to buy a car, you had to come up with the full price, the full purchase price in one go, like it just mm. go there, and of course, and the reason for the for the specials again, a, 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 um, an era of British motoring that I find endlessly fascinating with sort of Fairthorpes and Barclays and Rochdales and all those, mm. all those. I hesitate to say kit car, but cars that you built yourself to avoid right. sales tax, which was 40% of the purchase price, for goodness sake. Oh, no. 40%. And so my dad would sort of look at something like anything set on television now, set in the 50s or 60s, and go, I used to drive a pre-war Morris in 1965, and I think, well, yeah, it's always, when they show the 60s, there's always a Ford Anglia pulls up next to a Vespa, and there's a Mini, and like, and you think, <laughs> a lot of people drove, clapped out, including my dad, clapped out pre-war cars, because it was really difficult until the advent of Hyatt Purchase to buy a new car, and it was, it was still not something that working-class people did. I was born... I was born in Bury, brought up on a Coronation Street-style terrace street. My dad worked in a paper mill, cobbles, Ellis Lowry, all that sort of stuff, just like that. Mm-hmm. Three cars. Mr. Kelly's Austin Maxi, um, our next-door neighbour, Mr. Harrison, had a mini countryman, and yeah. Sheila and Jerry, just up the road, who had pampas grass in their little front garden and may, may or may not have been swingers, 
had a four. <laughs> had a four, They looked. They they were they were the most stylish people on our street. They didn't have any kids, but they had a lot of holidays. I think they were nudists. And um, well, I was a teenager. I thought all sorts of things. They had a Ford Escort gear in metallic purple with a black vinyl roof, and that was a street of sixty houses, three cars. My dad, yeah. like you, like you've just said. My dad had a motorbike and sidecar, and he went to work on a bicycle, like so many people yeah. did back then. Yeah, it, it was two miles. But, you know, when, the, when the factories used to close here in Letchworth, I mean, the streets were covered in bicycles. At, you know, closing time, lunch time, they'd all be peddling around everywhere, and not many people had a car. My dad didn't get his first car until I think it was nineteen. Uh, 56, 57, it was a Hillman Minx, it was my granddad's car, and uh, I think it was given to my, my father as part of his estate. And um, so it was a, a black Hillman Minx, FNV664, still remember it, and uh, that was my sort of first memory of my dad's car. And um, yeah, you're like me, my dad before that had a, um, a new Hudson Auto Cycle. Well, with a, a new compressor wow. on it, which wow. he took his motorbike test in, which was actually... He, he, he didn't fail, but his brake cable broke as the examiner stepped out on the road to stop him in the emergency <laughs> stop. He had the instructor, but actually he still passed him, which is really good. I took my That's test on my brother's Lambretta Li-150, and <laughs> as I was setting off, because I'd managed to incapacitate my machine the night before, as I was setting off, he said, front brake doesn't work. I was like, okay. So, of course, um, speed shops listened to all over the place, and by mainly by old men like us, But um, if, if I'm honest, but... Um, by people of all kinds of ages, he said confidently. Um, the motorcycle test used to involve riding round a block, doing hand signals, and at some point, a man in a beard wearing a sweater with leather elbow patches and Clark's wallabies that looked like Cornish pasties would step out into the middle of the road and hold aloft his clipboard, thus instructing <laughs> you to perform an emergency stop. So I thought, yeah. I thought, right, well, I'd better push down hard on the front end of this blinking scooter or else he's going to know that the, I'm only using the back brake and I mustn't lock up the back or he'll fail me. <laughs> so I just knocked it. As soon as I saw him step out, I thought, I'm not waiting for the clipboard. I knocked it down a gear, popped the clutch out and stood on the back brake as much as I dare and pushed yeah. hard on the front so it looked like Maybe the front, the front brake was working. Yeah. And yeah. I've told this story many times. I'll tell it quickly again. We went back to the test centre. I took my crash helmet off and he said, uh, Mr, do I know you? I said, yeah, you passed, me for, you passed me on my car test four days ago. And he said, oh, damn it, I should have failed you on this. We don't want you getting cocky. And I actually said, too late for that, pal. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember well, your I test? Failed. What did I you take your test? You failed. Yeah, well, look, I, and I was quite an experienced driver when I, as soon as I got my driving license because, you know, I'd been driving illegally on the road since I was 13, which is actually where I met my father-in-law, who was chairman of the magistrates eventually. And um, But to cut a long story short on that, I actually was um, uh, out doing my test because I had to produce my driving license. So when you go to your test centre, you give your licence and then, you, then the examiner comes out and you go for your test. Well, of course, my little red oblong driving license which is a provisional um had five endorsements in it right? <laughs> hey you beat me mine had four yeah. mine four w- did you really when mine arrived yeah. when my driving license arrived it had my provisional driving license it had an extra section sellotaped <laughs> sellotaped yeah, tuck in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, mine was too. to it with a load with my endorsements for I think there were four, but three were for the same offence. And the the, the offence consisted of having Gordon Sawfleet on the back of his Lambretta SX200. And when we were... And people are going to say, 
oh, you're just making this stuff up, Barry. This this didn't happen. <laughs> this happened. This happened. Well, we're going. No, hold on, a, hold on a sec. I've got to tell you. So we're we're two up on a Lambretta SX200. We're riding a Manchester Road, the A56. No helmets, underage, nothing. No MOT. No, no, no legal, no legal stuff. People might go. Oh, you're boasting about breaking the law. We were children. We were just making our way in the world, and we, you know, yeah. we were full of testosterone and, and all sorts of and cider and yeah. all that sort. Of, anyway, so a police a policeman on horseback, <laughs> a policeman on horseback, tried to flag <laughs> flag me down. I was so annoyed that he thought he tried to flag me down. So I pulled a wheelie, which is when you've got somebody a big lad, Gordon, six foot plus, on the back of this scooter. Very easy to pull a wheelie on one of those, despite the mm. the lack of any sort of torque from its single cylinder engine. Pulled a wheelie, and it, I saw it. I looked back, and he turned round and was chasing me on a horse. I was so offended. <laughs> I thought it, it, it might not be that fast, but you're not going to catch me on a horse. So off I went, flicking him the V's and, and, and what have you. When I got home, my dad said, "My dad said, police has been around to see you." <laughs> it's like because this is what he did. He because he was a proper policeman. He stopped in the street and he said to people, "Do you know those two boys that are on?" Oh, that'll be good. One lad, tall, red hair. Oh, that'll be good. And he lives at the end of Parliament Street. <laughs> so, was, so he'd literally done like five minutes of police work, found out both our addresses. By the time we both got home, both our fathers knew that we were in trouble with the police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all different in those days. I mean, when I I was going back to my driving license because I had to produce it to actually take my test. This, this uh, examiner obviously flicked through it. And he could see I'd already got five endorsements. So I think <laughs> straight away he thought, like with you, he thought this cocky little swine. We're going to deal with him. You know, he's not going to pass first time. So anyway, and went out on the road. I was sat in this trial peril with a local driving instructor's car, and the, the examiner was next to me. We, we drive, I'm doing everything perfectly. Three-point turn, indicating arm signals, everything you're supposed to do. Last thing, he said, and we're going to go along this road, and we're going to do, Mr. Brown, an emergency stop. He said, I'm going to hit this newspaper roll on the dashboard, and when it hits the dashboard, I expect you to do an emergency stop. I thought, well, thanks, thanks for giving me a warning. I can do better than that. So anyway, I'm watching them with my left eye over on. I'm watching this piece of newspaper, waiting for it to hit the dashboard. The minute his arm moved, I slammed the brakes on. <laughs> he flew forward. He's in the seatbelt. So he flew forward, slammed himself into the dashboard, and said, failed. I said, what? He said, failed. I said, well, hang on a minute. I said, you said when that... He said, it hadn't hit the dashboard, Mr. Brown. He said, you failed. I thought, you, you bath steward, sir. Yeah. Hey, and that's not fair. That's not fair. So I failed first time. I passed second time, though. When I... I tell you, I've told this story before. I'll tell it again briefly. We haven't got too much time left. But I um, went to... I took my, So I passed my test and I went home. And I took the test in my father's car, which was... I think one of the one of the best post-war cars, certainly one of the most significant post-war cars. It was a BMW 2002 TII. Now the mm-hmm. TI wasn't injection, which kind of um, you know uh, tells you that BM that German nomenclature isn't always indicative of either engine size or, or whatever, because the TI wasn't mm-hmm. fuel injection. The TII was Kugelfischer fuel yeah. injection, that two-liter engine. For me, the first European truly sporting saloon car, BBS alloy wheels, gold centres, polished rims, it was china blue, blue, blue drail on interior. What a car. Uh, you know, this is kind of, it was a, it was a classic then, because this is kind of mm-hmm. the mid-80s. The car was 10 years old then and was thought yeah. of as an old car. 
but it was so much better than virtually everything that was around at that oh, time. Pretty cars. Well. Oh, I've, got such... ba- I've got a Batmobile, and I uh, absolutely love it. Absolutely brilliant. And um, great to drive, and because all Batmobiles, if you remember them, they were actually all left-hand drive. And they were basically a CSL with uh, a few wings and fins fitted on them. And um, Germany were not allowed to sell them with the wings and the, it came the in, fins. It, it was all in the boot, wasn't it, when you bought the car, if you bought yeah, it in you Germany? Yeah, you bought the car. They, yeah, it got delivered, and it was, all, it was all in the boot. And then you had to take it to your local garage. They then put the bits on. And that's how it happened. And uh, I've got one. And I'm in a fabulous car, lovely to drive. And they look amazing. They're so they do. iconic. John, have you ever yeah. had an M1? No, I've not had an M1. I've had most things, but not an M1. I've driven one. I've, I've had a. I've had a McLaren. I've had the first ever McLaren road car, which was a McLaren M1B. On the road, it was called the McLaren Ikenga, and that was um, built by a designer um, who was more of a fashion designer. But he built this car called the Ikenga. He was um, David Gittins. He, he was, was American. An, yeah, an African American man as well, wasn't he? He, he was, was indeed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and he I, designed scooters and all sorts of things. He had this car built in London, but it was actually a fast car. And I bought this car. But actually, I got it from uh, the Isle of Man Motor Museum, uh, and it was red. And I had tried to buy this car um, on a number of occasions. I went over to the Isle of Man, and I tried to buy it. Uh, I ended up buying a fire engine for the same museum. But I tried <laughs> to buy this car. I, I, I think it's fire engines. I'll tell you about fire engines. Do you want to look fire engines? I've got loads of them. But on the, on the Ikenga, it was painted red, and I tried to buy it. And this is, I'm, going, I'm telling you the date, it was 1991. And he, it was, I, I bid him £75,000 for this car. He would not take it. He would not take it. A few years later, he decided to sell the museum. Now We're now going to about 1996. And his name is Richard Evans, a lovely guy. And anyway, in the end, he put it through a couple of auctions, and this car didn't sell. Eventually, I bought it from Bonhams London, because I'm very friendly with Bonhams. They're a great, great crowd. They are. Um, they're a really good crowd. And Jamie Knight was running the sale, and I, 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 anyway, I, bid for it. I got it £7,000. So it was 10% of what I'd originally offered. I was over the moon. I couldn't believe I bought it. Everyone's going, wow, John, you got a steal. John, I am so glad for all kinds of reasons that you came on the show. This car gets mentioned so many times. Two questions. Was it the car that was in, that was in the Jerry Anderson series UFO? Is it, is it the same car? I can't be honest about that. I don't know. Because um, he built, uh, built a couple. And the other question, and, uh, the other question is, was was that car the one that ended up on which I saw in the Isle of Man Motor Museum up there on the mountain, where I yes. I, I actually left the circuit on a nineteen twenty eight Sunbeam? But that's another but involuntary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I I messed up a gear change and drifted onto oh. the grass, which you really <laughs> don't want to be doing. You really no, don't no, want to be doing there. that there. No, um, there. So I have the, the museum gives me a, a bit of a terrible flashback, but the car. Did, was that car at one time owned by formerly the resident DJ at the Berry Pally in the 1960s when he was called David Griffin, but better known to people as Dave Lee Travis? Did he own that car? I wouldn't be surprised. I couldn't confirm I that. I think he couldn't did. I it. think he did at some point and used it because, of course, he was very involved in drag racing and I think some circuit racing. Yes, As, he was, yeah. Well, they all were, well, not they all were, but it seemed to be, you know, you can't imagine it now, but there was, obviously, Mike Smith raced in the British uh, Touring Car Championship. He did, he did. And yep. Noel, Noel Edmonds did a, did a lot of motor racing in his, and was a very competent driver. Yeah, he was, yeah. He's still got his GT40, has he? 
Can you imagine running a GT40? What, what's what's the most Brilliant. exotic car you've run on the road? Was it that one, John? Was it the Ikenga? Oh, um, well, it was exotic, but I've had so many cars. I mean, if you're going through them all, I mean, I had a car called Top Cat. Now, Top Cat was built for the Ordnance Survey um, as a PR machine. It was a V12 uh, Jaguar engine, and it had this F111 cockpit. It was unbelievably beautiful. Um, it was metallic silver, and it had little winglets, um, a fin tail, everything. And the cockpit would seat three, one in front, two behind. And as you're going along, you had a, a hydraulic mechanism, which you could actually jack the front of the car up seven feet. It would go along. It looks like it's taken off. So as you're going, approaching traffic, you know, you think, blimey, what is this coming towards? And then all of a sudden, it starts to raise up. It gave you an eerie feeling. Um, and we found that we could use it to our, uh, our advantage at the local fish and chip shop, where every Saturday night there was a massive queue. So if we took the kids down for fish and chips, we could drive down in the uh, in Top Cat and we'd pull up outside the fish and chip shop. Everybody would leave the queue and go, look, it's an amazing car. I'd, I'd flip the cockpit, run into the fish and chip shop, get in the fish and chips, come back in, and the queue is still standing looking at the cars. We never had to queue for our fish and chips on Saturday night. But this is an amazing car. It's very fast. And we sold it to a guy up your way, and his name was oh Ian Grange. Ian Grange, yeah. And he died a couple of years ago, and I sold it to Ian. And, uh, yeah, great thing. Well, but, it's... All the cars. Go on, the, the, the things like uh, the, the fire engines, the 3,000 historic cars I've owned in general, there's a massive amount. And to say which one was your most exotic or whatever... There's been too many, you know, too many. But I love, I love the idea of using what people would think of as an exotic vehicle for incredibly mundane daily chores. I once went to pick up some components for a gas fire on a very limited edition Ducati homologation special motorcycle, where they had to make right. a, they had to make a few of them for road use, and the riding position was excruciating unless you were unless you were actually up. Monza or Assen or somewhere like that. And right. I, I rode it round to this guy's house. I'd seen a classified ad for these parts for this gas fire that I needed. And I put them in a in a rucksack, which I strapped. It was a single-seater motorcycle, which I strapped to the seat hump and set off from outside his house, anxious to get home, and pulled a massive wheelie all the way down his street because, of course, the weight of this stuff on the back. And I just thought... This is perhaps not the best idea that I've ever read, but it, it just seemed like fun at the time. Like I, I really, fun, I, I've kind of grown up thinking that idea. It's a very British idea as well, I think, John, of Sunday best of of one. I met this guy called Eddie in um, south of Mauritania. There's a bit between Mauritania and Morocco that's mm-hmm. um, that's disputed territory. They just they, it's administered by the UN. If you look on the map. It's it's literally nowhere. It's not a country. It's just it's as administered by UN. It's just a buffer zone. So there's mm-hmm. nothing there. The reason it's because no one wants it. it. I don't think there's much in the way of minerals. You can't grow anything there. It's just hard packed sand. It's just a flat, featureless landscape. And I saw this motorcycle coming, and it was an old BMW. And it was this guy from London called Eddie, and he told me mm. his story, and he said he was riding to Timbuktu in Mali. And the reason he was doing it is because when he was a teenager, if during the week he came downstairs wearing his best clothes, his mother would say, where do you think you're off to? Timbuktu. And so he was actually going. <laughs> but it was that British idea, which is that 
you should spend the majority of your time working and then expect a tiny little bit of pleasure and, and enjoyment and excitement at the weekend. And I grew yeah. up thinking, sod that. And I think it seems like you did as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, have, I mean, the amazing thing, I mean, this guy called Andy Saunders built special cars, one-offs, all crazy stuff. You may have even met Andy. He's been and on the uh, show. He was a great guest. He's been really? A, well, yeah. I had his Fletcher Arrow speedboat. And it was built onto a Reliant three-wheeler chassis. And it looked amazing in yellow and all sorts of things. And I added things like water skis to it. And we put the kids... <laughs> we put water skis... We put the kid, I stole the kids' skateboards and screwed the skateboards onto the bottom of these water skis. And we used to ski on it. We used to go with rope. We used to ski down the road with this Fletcher Arrow speedboat. No, you didn't! Yeah, yeah, Did really. you really no, do we, this? Yeah, and then we got a, got a call from the Sun newspaper because we advertised it for sale. And then the um, reporter came up with a photographer and said, Look, we've got a model, can she, can she t- ski behind it? I said, yeah, sure. So anyway, this model proceeded to take her clothes off. Health and safety, John. Health and safety. No, you wouldn't believe it. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. She got into a bikini at the side of the road, and we drove down our local village of Steeple Morden near Royston in Hertfordshire with this beautiful blonde in a bikini on a hot summer's day being towed by me in the speedboat going down the high street. It's amazing pictures. It's really, really I've got photographs of that still. But with my guys at work for me said, John, I bet you don't drive it on the motorway. I said, yeah, I dare. So they bet me. They said, look, you know, drive to so-and-so and Stevens and, and you've got to get his autograph. Otherwise, we, you won't, we won't believe you've been there. We'll think you've been down the court and hidden and then come back and get your £10 bet. And I said, no, I'll do it. So what, what, what they weren't expecting, because I lived at the farm, and I walked across the farmhouse. Thought, well, I'm going to really make an entrance for this. So I went upstairs and got changed. I came back in a pair of speedos, flip flops, <laughs> a snorkel and mask, <laughs> and I got into this motorised speedboat and drove to Stevenage. Got the autograph. I was driving back down the A1N motorway. And I was just coming past Letchworth, and I could see a police car coming up behind me. And I thought, oh my God, I'm in trouble here. And this policeman pulled me over. I thought, oh, my goody aunt. So I'm sat there, and he looked at me, and I'm now 55 years old. He looked at me, and he said, um, he said, so aren't you a bit old for this? Said, <laughs> That's a bit cheeky of him, isn't it? I, just, I said, I'm, no, I'm not. I said, I'm just about having a bit of fun. I said, I'm sure if you examine my vehicle, you'll find it's all legal. It's MOT, and it's taxed. He said, I'm sure it is, though. He said, that's not the reason I've stopped you. I said, well, what have I done? He said, nothing. I said, well, why has it stopped me? He said, look, he said, you don't mind if I take your picture. They're never going to believe this down the neck. <laughs> <laughs> that's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry. There's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.